Thanks so much, Jody and Carly and everybody for making me welcome. Can everybody hear me even in the back? Yeah, good. Um, I'm just so glad to be here. You know, I, 10 years ago when I was here, it's just as beautiful as I remember it. And I also remember how stuck I was when I came last time. I was really blocked, and I remember sitting in my uh, apartment and suddenly being able to write again. Um, so may that all happen to you, too. And I'm looking forward to working with you, so I'm going to give a craft talk tomorrow, and then the writers can sign up after for our meetings. But I'm very approachable, and so just come up to me, talk, tell me. I, poets, I probably can't do too much for you. Visual artists, not at all. But you can still come over for a chat. And as um, Jody said, I kind of am a tennis nut, so if anybody happens to have a racket and know how to play, see me. Um, seemingly to contradict that, I've been having these weird migraine things go on where I get vertigo in the past couple of days. So if I suddenly start spinning around and hit the floor, do not panic. It's not serious. I will get up and keep reading. So I just thought, I don't think that'll happen, but it seems like stress brings it on. I don't know. It'll make it more exciting. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to read to you um, a little bit from Bible or Dirty Jokes, but uh, the novel has kind of two main threads. So I'm going to tell you about one of them and then read from the more fun one. Um, so the, the main character, Ketzel, like me, grew up in a part of New York State called the Borscht Belt, in the Catskill Mountains, just west of the Hudson River. Um, it was a working-class Jewish resort area, very ethnic, very kind of coarse and vulgar. Um, mostly its heyday was from like the 19 teens and 20s through the 1960s. Basically, um, Jews couldn't afford to go elsewhere. They were working in sweatshops in New York City. Many of them got tuberculosis, so they started these little resorts um, in, in the foothills of the Catskills. Also, they weren't allowed to check into most hotels. Believe it or not, I mean, if you were black, of course, you couldn't check in to any hotel. But most hotels, especially in New England, you couldn't check in if they thought you were Jewish either. So Jews had to make their own uh, resort areas. There also were all black um, resorts in the same uh, area. And um, the, uh, so how many of you have ever seen Dirty Dancing? the movie yeah okay so that's I grew up that hotel that that's based on it's not where the movie was shot but it, the hotel it's based on was in my hometown my family had a much smaller grubbier version of a hotel than the one in Dirty Dancing what's interesting when they made that movie if you think of it they never say that everybody in that movie except Patrick Swayze is Jewish right because when they made the movie they thought nobody would go see the movie if they thought it was about Jews so that's how much the world has changed even since. So Baby is Jewish, and it's not only that Patrick Swayze is like the dance instructor who might get somebody pregnant. In the screenplay, it's that he's not Jewish, right? He's a townie. And that's really why Baby's father is upset. Um, so anyway, so I grew up at a place like that. And um, the hotel where this is set at the beginning is very much like that hotel, except it's just closed. Um, Ketzel's parents uh, ran it their whole lives, but it's gone bankrupt, as all the hotels did in that area. And um, uh, we all were waiting for gambling, for casinos to come in to revive the area, which is what has finally happened. And so in this book, the family uh, has just sold the property to uh, a, a Trump-like casino developer who is going to dig it up and rebuild it and dredge the lake 
Now, Quetzal was the youngest in her family and the only girl, so she had all these older brothers, and she was kept kind of innocent of what was really going on at the hotel or in her family, but all the older brothers have uh, come to sort of sorry ends. One's in jail, one got involved with Donald Trump. I wrote this long before he became president and, and also met a sorry end. Um, and her next eldest brother, Patsy, has gone, he was a bookie in Las Vegas and he's gone missing, right? So part of the plot of the novel is that Quetzal's the only one left. Her parents are old and infirm, so she gets sent to Las Vegas to figure out what happened to this brother of hers. But she also finds out that her family, since the beginning of time, has basically been involved with organized crime. That they, her grandfather got the money to build the hotel through prohibition, and then they were very intimately connected to the Jewish mafia, which was called Murder Incorporated. I just love that it's called Murder Incorporated. And that there literally are bodies buried all over the hotel and sunk in the lake, and her parents are afraid that the new developers are going to dig up the bodies. So that whole part of the novel sort of has to do with my wondering why uh, Jews have romanticized sort of their gang the gangsters in their past. Like, why do Jews, but why do Americans romanticize gangsters? Everybody from Jesse James to Tony Soprano, why do we think they were so great? I mean, to Tony Soprano is really a pretty horrible person, right? But we love watching him on The Sopranos. So, so that's the part of the book I'm not gonna read you. Um, the other part, the sort of subplot, is that Quetzal grows up at this hotel. Now the Catskills, what they were really known for besides food, was um, comedy. It's basically where American stand-up comedy was born and grew up, and every major comic of the 20th century basically got his or her start, so they were also some early female comics at these hotels. Really vulgar comedy. Um, so I don't know how many of these names would even mean anything to you. Alan King, Buddy Hackett, Jerry Lewis, right? They all got their start at these hotels. Now, Quetzal grows up at this hotel, and like me, you, you grow up just hearing all these stand-up routines, and you think, to me, that was culture. Nobody read, nobody listened to classical music. It was all about stand-up comedy. And the comics were, were in town, you would run into them, all these were the celebrities. Um, so she grows up wanting to be a stand-up comic, but because she's a girl, it's much more difficult. So the, the subtext of the novel has to do with Quetzal in her 50s, finally achieving her dream or pursuing her dream of being a stand-up comic. So it's told in her voice, and in some sense the whole book is a, is kind of her stand-up routine, but you don't find that out till the end. All right, so I'm just gonna read you some excerpts from that aspect of the novel. Now, so she, um, you'll find, she grows up wanting to be a comic, but instead she ends up marrying a much older man who um, becomes a the first professor of the dirty joke, and he's based on a real person. There really was a guy, a Jewish guy, who was the first ethnographer of, of like smut, pornography, and dirty jokes. So this guy, I named him Morty, but he's based on a real person, all right. My story begins last spring. I was sitting in this apartment trying to make sense of the thousands of bits of paper, tape recordings, photographs, and erotic objects to art that my dear late husband Morty managed to accumulate in his 61 years of research. I was doing this because the Department of Popular Culture at Columbia University had expressed such a fervent interest in acquiring this strange collection. 
And because I recently had come to realize what interesting revealing clues to my husband's private life were scattered among these files. As you might or might not know, Morty was a pioneer in the field of the dirty joke. The hubbub he created in the late 1950s when he published his first few monographs on bawdy songs and jokes about farmers' daughters was exceeded only by the furor created a decade later by his friend and colleague, Alfred Kinsey. But in the area of organizational skills, let's just say dear Morty was deficient, by which I mean, if not for me, he couldn't have found a clean pair of socks to put, in on, the put on in the morning or, for that matter, found his feet. In our 29 years together, I helped him type up and organize nearly all the data he had amassed. But after Morty died, I found in his bureau drawer the key to a locker in New Jersey I hadn't known existed. Not only did I discover evidence that he had kept up a correspondence with a Playboy bunny turned sociologist named Candace Cohn, her stage name, of course, is Candy Cohn, the evidence seemed to indicate that Morty and Professor Cohn had carried on an affair until the day he died. Nor was that all. In a small black leather book, Morty had recorded his visits to every strip club in Bordello from Canada to the Rio Grande with notations that seemed to indicate the names, ages, and identifying characteristics of the women with whom he had, enc had encounters, along with receipts for the services they provided charged to a credit card I hadn't known Morty owned. Equally damning, the locker contained a trove of erotic artifacts dating back to Greek and Roman times. If Morty had sold only a few such treasures, I could have stopped working as a waitress. We could have afforded to take vacations. I could have accompanied him on his trips. We might even have had a child. So now I'll skip ahead a little bit. People scratch their heads as to why a sweet young girl of 21 would have chosen to devote her life to a rumpled satyr twice her age. But Morty and I were like Siamese twins born with one funny bone between us. What made Morty laugh made me laugh. If two people can bestow orgasms of comedic pleasure on each other, Morty and I were those two people. I had grown up in the Catskills, where I spent most of my time listening to the performers play Can You Top This with stories so obscene, even the connoisseurs in our audience jammed their fingers in their ears and groaned. It's not that the jokes were funny. Some were, most were not. It's that I learned at an early age what Morty had figured out even younger. Beneath the pleasant service of respectable human life, seethes a roiling pool of schmutz. I had trouble applying this observation to the people I loved, my brothers, say, or my parents, but I suspected it was there. I knew and I didn't know. I admitted and I repressed. What we know and won't admit isn't that the heart of the dirty joke, not to mention life itself. But all that came later. As a little girl, I understood only that the comics who performed at our hotel were heroes. When they strutted across the stage, everyone paid attention, while no matter what I did, no one seemed to see me. I started collecting jokes in a three-ring binder. I would transcribe a comedian's best routines, his second best, even his third best, then practice retelling them to the mirror until I had perfected every inflection, every eye cross and pungent pause. 
back when I was 10 and Rodney Dangerfield was still an aluminum siding salesman named Jack Roy who worked the hospitality stage for free, I could mimic that droopy lower lip, that heavenward gaze, and that sly self-mocking whine. I tell you, I got no respect. I was such an ugly kid, my mother breastfed me through a straw. My wife, her favorite position is facing Bloomingdale's. This girl I've been seeing, I say to her, come home with me, baby. I'll show you where it's at. And she says, you better show me, because last time I couldn't find it. <laughs> the next time these same performers came to play, I would treat them to my imitations of their own routines. Oh, how they hooted and they howled. Ketzel, you're such a natural. You've got the timing down pat. No one could teach a person to make the faces you make, to move the way you move. You'll carry on single-handed after all us old farts are dead. That is, until I revealed I wanted to be a comic too. We didn't think you were serious, Buddy Hackett blubbered. We didn't laugh because you were funny. We laughed because you were imitating us. They'll eat you alive, dear Ketzel. This from Alan King. The Borscht Belt is dying, he said. You're a hack if you tell a joke. Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce ruined it for the rest of us. You need to be topical and observational, or you've got to be really blue, which isn't something an audience wants to hear from an innocent girl named Ketzel. Then my father put down his feet, and this was when he still had two good feet to put down. No daughter of mine is going to earn her living telling jokes. Please, my mother begged, could it hurt to go to college? Get your teaching certificate so you'll have something to fall back on when being a comedian doesn't pan out. But I had no desire to go to college. And for one brief and shining moment, I refused to do what my parents said. Where did I find the nerve? Maybe I was too naive to be aware of the dangers I now would fear. I found a boarding house in the village whose name I had heard performers mention as somewhere they had stayed five or six decades earlier before they made it big on the vaudeville circuit. The heat was rarely on, and more than once I saw someone sitting in the stairwell pushing up the sleeve of an oily parka as a prelude to jamming a needle in. I kept a hot plate in my room and lived on Goodman's noodle soup until my savings ran out and I was forced to take a job waiting on tables at a deli where third-rate comics and entertainers like to hang out and gripe. After I worked a dinner shift, I would hurry home and change and sit waiting in some grimy underground bar for my turn at the open mic, where I was allowed to do my shtick for the three inebriated, ill-tempered patrons who had nowhere else to go. It's a story often told, and I won't retell it here, except to say the version you see in the movies, a montage of flops and crappy clubs, after which the hero, it's always a hero, gets his big chance. It's rarely true in life. My big chance never came. My jokes got no laughs, even when I realized no one understood the Yiddish punchlines and translated them to English. If my impressions were more successful, it was only because people found it so bizarre to see a teenage girl imitate Henny Youngman. My father's last name got me in to see the agents who handled comics, but only so they could tell me he had forbidden them to get me work. I tried making friends with the other comics, but I soon grew weary of the bitter rivalries and whiskey-soaked depressions, all the boasts and lies about the beautiful girls who had knocked at their dressing room doors and offered to suck their dicks, 
or they're bitching about the women who refuse to do the same. They drop their pants and moon the customers and make cracks about my breasts. If I had needed to listen one more time to the general wisdom that women can't be funny, I would have clouded someone over the head with a bottle of Dr. Brown celery tonic. And that's when I met Morty. He had come to the rising star early enough to score a table at the front, then sat frowning and wiggling those white Medusa brows while a young male comic with a scraggly goatee discussed the styles in which his girlfriends maintained their pubic hair. After the club closed, I went out the back door and found Morty in the alley. Not to fear, he said. I am neither a masher nor a kook. This did little to diminish my concern. He wore a grubby, unbelted coat such as a flasher might have worn. And when he unbuttoned the front to reach in his pocket, I averted my eyes. My credentials, he said, and held out a card, which, when I examined it, proved that Mordecai Tittleman was a member in good standing of the Friars Club and entitled to all the privileges and rights thereof. Suddenly, he looked less like a homeless person than a wise and courtly Virgil. What a dashing mustache. What a distinguished halo of hair. He looked like a cross between Bert Lahr and Albert Einstein. He bowed stiffly and invited me for a meal at a cheap cafe where we stayed up past dawn laughing and trading jokes. My dear, he said, you are to Borschbelt culture what Homer was to the ancient Greeks. <laughs> Most comics today, Morty said, were afraid of offending anyone for fear they wouldn't get invited on Johnny Carson. Instead of telling real jokes, they minced around the stage, fetching about the small stuff, inquiring politely of the audience, did you ever notice, or do you know what happened to me today? Even Lenny Bruce had tried to get a sitcom. And Lenny's worst sin, he had addicted us all to the soul-destroying vice of irony. After Lenny Bruce, we all became hipsters, Morty said, spitting out the word, as if he had found a lemon seed in the whiskey sour he was guzzling. Such discourse would have been intoxicating even if I hadn't been imbibing those same whiskey sours. I couldn't get enough of Morty. I drank in his philosophical meanderings as avidly as I drank in his compliments. What do you need with college, he said. Those caca academics still only teach you how to think like everyone else. As for Morty, he had cadged his education by sitting in on lectures at NYU and setting up camp in the reading room of the New York Public Library. So assiduous a pupil was he that by the mid-1960s, he was asked to teach a course in erotic folklore at CCNY, a position he accepted and then resigned because his students were so spaced out on mar marijuana and psychedelics, they couldn't follow a coherent argument, let alone come up with their own ideas. Is that why we're fighting a revolution, Morty asked, so people can lie around acting cool? Who wants to be cool? Being hot is where it's at. As to the other professors with their fine words and fine ideas about Marcuse and Reich, all they really wanted was to get inside their students' pants, he said. Morty's biggest disappointment was that after fighting to bring the country free love, what he had achieved was the devil in Miss Jones and Screw Magazine. He wanted his students to chase Nixon out of office, not organize a giant grope fest. Morty was a teacher to his core, and in me, he found his ideal pupil. After we met at the Rising Star, he sent me a list of books to read, museums to visit, lectures to attend, and plays to see. As Herman Melville might have put it, 
Morty Tittleman was my Harvard and Yale college. He tutored me not only in love and sex, but politics, economics, religion, literature, mythology, and psychology. No doubt you have read his essay, No Laughing Matter, The Selling of the American Soul. According to Morty, instead of inventing dirty stories to amuse each other, we now allow multinational corporations to produce our humor for us. Movies, radio shows, sitcoms, LPs, and tape recordings have become mechanical substitutes for authentic human communication. What we have ended up with, and I quote, is sexless synthetic art and sadistic entertainments no normal human being would ever wish to see. When every line of dialogue has to be written and reviewed, censored and rehearsed beforehand, nothing remains but kitsch. In other words, what we get is safe, self-conscious humor, not the collective id, but one man's girlfriend's pubic hair. You can imagine how heady such discussions were for a girl my age. And Morty treated me like a queen. He showed up at the deli where I worked, ordered coffee and a slice of cake, and every time I stopped to refill his cup, he offered me another compliment. Ketzel, he said, you have the most winning smile of any woman I've ever met. Or, this cheesecake is delicious, but it isn't as sweet as you. So I'll read you one, one more bit of this. And then, yes, Morty wooed me. Morty and I made love. Until then, he had never so much as invited me up to see his etchings. He was ashamed of the mess, he said. Every square inch of his grimy flat was covered with spools of recording tape, index cards, notebooks, fertility figures from the Congo, and cans of meatball and cabbage soup. But after we became engaged, Morty escorted me up those five flights of stairs and unlocked the door. The apartment was still a mess, but Morty had cleared a path from the living room to the bedroom, where his mattress lay on the floor, the linens clean, the pillows plumped, and flowers he must have picked in Central Park strewn across the quilt. He helped me remove my coat. I haven't the slightest doubt that I would be happy making love to you and no one but you for the remainder of my life, Morty said. But it wouldn't be fair to ask that you go through with our impending nuptials without having sampled the goods. Perhaps making love with a man so much your senior will turn out to be a disappointing experience, he said. In short, I would be a cad to ask you to buy a pig in a poke. I suggest you allow me to make love to you now while you still have the chance to break our engagement and walk away without the slightest ill will on my part, of course. Oh, Morty, I said. I thought you would never ask. I put one palm to either side of his head and lifted his face to mine. Morty Tittleman, there is no one I would rather make love to the first time than you. He removed my garments one by one and laid me on his bed, after which he stood looking down at me, shaking his head and smiling. Oh, Ketzel, he said, on the one hand, the world is too full of this. He waved his arms to indicate the piles of smut. But then, my love, there is this. He stretched his arms toward me. And if the poor bastards who were responsible for all that muck had ever been lucky enough to catch even one glimpse of you, none of that would exist. What nicer words could a woman hear? And you won't be surprised to learn that the wear and tear on an old man's body can be offset by his knowledge of the hows and whys of love. 
Morty Tittleman loved me the way few men are capable of loving a woman. He knew all the ins and outs. He wrote the book on Cunnilingus. No, literally, he wrote the book. <laughs> a thousand copies of his masterpiece, The Pleasures and Techniques of Oral Love, were printed in the 1950s. 998 of those copies were destroyed by the FBI, but I own the remaining two, each of which is worth 10 or 15 grand. I intend to bequeath the 999th copy to Columbia. But I am sure the archivists there will understand if I keep this one remaining copy of oral love to peruse on those nights I miss Morty the most. Reading this book and admiring the illustrations which Morty drew, I can almost feel his tongue performing its magic you know where. Oh, 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 when I remember those early years. Morty's apartment wasn't much, but it was certainly a big improvement on my room at the Bedbug Inn. And even though I kept working part-time to support us, Morty treated me to a life otherwise I wouldn't have known or enjoyed without Morty. Our apartment was always full. The jokes we studied were rarely funny, but Morty and his friends were dazzling raconteurs. How many people can say they've had the pleasure of listening to Margaret Mead discourse on the joke-telling habits of adolescent Samoan girls or turn down the comforter on their bed to find their portrait sketched on the sheet by that lunatic genius R. Crumb or heard Harpo Marx tell a joke? I was Dorothea to Morty's Kausabon. I remember the first time I heard Morty explain Sigmund Freud's idea that if two men are telling a dirty joke, there is always a woman present. If not in actuality, then in each of the two men's minds, and they are forcing the woman in the room to do what the woman in the joke is doing, or to submit to what is being done to her. Quetzal Morty said, the reason you wanted to become a comic is you preferred not to be the woman standing idly by while those two men told their jokes. You didn't want to be the woman they were stripping naked for their amusement. You thought if you were the one telling the dirty joke, you couldn't be pinched or mauled. But the truth is, none of us will be safe from such indignities unless we manage to understand the ugliness in the soul that makes anyone want to tell such a monstrosity in the first place. Which, when Morty said it, I immediately knew was true. <laughs>